Good evening, I'm Sharon Dunn, and this is Ideas, Making Sense of the News. What news does is it goes around a world where there are all kinds of things going on, all kinds of occurrences, and it says, aha, this one is important. This is what one must pay attention to. This is the world. Tonight, we present the concluding broadcast in our series, The Politics of Information. We think that events and, uh, and the action of groups and classes and interests in society have their own intrinsic meaning, that they carry their meanings, as one writer said, like number plates on their backs. You know, people walk down the street saying, I am a striker. But I mean, in fact, of course, that is not so. The process of making meaning is, an, uh, is a creative act. It's a conscious act uh, and an unconscious one sometimes, but it is the making of something new. You have to construct the meaning of an event. Tonight's Ideas program is called Making Sense of the News. You start with the intuition, and from there you go out and try and find the facts that will confirm your uh, truth. Our old and crusty editor of uh, one of the English newspapers, the Daily Mail, uh, once said, uh, I don't hold with highfalutin talk. I'm a newspaper man. I tell stories. The Politics of Information, Making Sense of the News, presented by David Cayley. Once upon a time, there was a theory of news called the gatekeeper theory. It supposed that news simply existed in potentially infinite amounts. The function of the news media was to act as gatekeepers, selecting some stories, excluding others. The existence of news itself was not questioned. It was simply there, like rocks or trees, waiting to be discovered by those blessed with what journalists call news sense. This theory does well enough in indicating the role of news media in the selection of news but it overlooks their role in creating it. Because news does not simply make itself, it is made out of a complex collaboration between media owners, editors, reporters, sources, and audiences. Rather than being just a mirror of the social world, the news is in fact an active participant in its construction. In recent years, this theory of news as social construction rather than objective reflection, has been adopted by a number of writers and scholars, of whom you will be hearing several representatives tonight. One of them is Gay Tuckman, the author of Making News, and a professor of sociology at the City University of New York, where I talked with her late last year. The theory of news that was popular until about, I guess, about the 1970s, was a theory that emphasized editors and reporters as gatekeepers. And it had this kind of notion that there were these people who um, stood at some kind of gate and ideas flowed past them. Um, sometimes when I think about this, I think about um, some guy who has a toll bridge on the Mississippi River. And uh, these rafts float down the river and some of these rafts carry political stories, and some of these rafts carry police stories, and some of these rafts carry economic news. 
and um, there's this editor who says, oh, I want half of those and one-third of those and uh, two eggs. Well, um, it seems to me that's a ridiculous theory because news people, news workers, are not passive toll gates. You just um, wait for stuff to kind of flow by. Um, you didn't wait for me to show up in Toronto. You came down here. Um, they're actively making something. They're having a say. And the other thing that I very much don't like um, about the old way, the old gatekeeper theory, um, is it never bothered to ask what news was. and wasn't asking about the fundamental categories that people use to constitute the world. And um, by constitute the world, I mean um, simultaneously to perceive the existence of a category and to make the category. You know, where in the act of applying an idea, you make it real. News constitutes the social world, first of all, by translating complex social processes into discrete and intelligible stories. Stuart Hall, a sociologist at England's Open University, calls this operation encoding. What I mean by the term encoding is that all those processes by which journalists are sent out and make sense of Vietnam and send a message about Vietnam back to an editor who makes another kind of sense of it and puts some words to describe it which somebody else speaks with a certain inflection, that whole process of production, of the production of meaning, is what I call encoding. And to put it simply, it is converting an event into a story. Events happen in the real world, but what happens on your television screen is a story about the events. And that's a process we ought to understand. It's a process of selection, editing, connecting one thing with another, framing it, interpreting it. That's encoding. Now, for a very long time, people became interested in encoding, though not necessarily in the ideological way I've been talking about it. But imagine that out there in the streets, were people whose minds were absolutely blank, like mirrors, and uh, people who simply took whatever was the way in which the facts were encoded. That, that's to say that the production of meaning was a process, but that the reception of meaning in the audience was not. So I use the word decoding to remind ourselves that people have to make sense of what has been made sense of. They have to look at the television set and say, that is a picture of Vietnam, and I know why he's saying that, and the question is the policy of the president in that area, etc. They have to bring to the understanding of what they're seeing or reading their own frames of reference. So if I can give a very personal example, I watch the news every night. Uh, I very rarely believe all it's saying, but that's because I have another framework which tells me when he says that, what he really means is. So I'm constantly deconstructing what the newsman and the news media have constructed for me. And I think we have to understand the process of media communication as a kind of give and take or exchange system between encoding institutions and decoding audiences, provided that is that we remember that the encoding part of the system or the process has much greater power because they set up the frameworks. All the audience can do is say, I don't believe it. They can't themselves impose another alternative definition on events, except in their own minds and their own heads. But bearing that difference of cultural power in mind, that's what I mean by encoding and decoding. Meaning, in other words, is the product of a collaboration between media and their audiences. And Stuart Hall's proviso about the decoding function of audiences suggests that the power of news media consists in lending weight to existing definitions 
rather than in inventing these definitions outright. It's often said that people riot because they've seen other people rioting. I very much doubt myself whether the media have that absolutely autonomous power. That's to say, I doubt very much whether the media alone could conjure up a label for some group and affix that label without some reference to the reality behind it. So I don't believe in the autonomous power of the, of the media in that sense. What I do think is that the media have enormously underpinning power. That is to say, once the definitions come into play, it can give enormous weight to one set of definitions or one set of labels and rule out of existence, rule out of reality, push to the margins other kinds of labels, definitions and descriptions. In that way, they, first of all, underpin very selective range of ways of understanding what is going on in the world. And then, of course, by constantly returning to that viewpoint or that way of seeing things, they then amplify them. They make them, they make them become more real than they were before. That's not an autonomous power, but it's a very... It's a very powerful source of the way in which people think and act. Media, in Stuart Hall's terms, are certainly ideological vehicles. But this does not mean that the ideological effects of news are always the result of a conscious or even an intentional process. Frequently, these effects emerge as the consequence of the attitudes which news workers share in common with their society and of the economic and institutional requirements of the media organizations for which they work. James Curran is a senior lecturer in communications at the Central Polytechnic of London and the author of Power Without Responsibility. By and large, I don't think publishers say to their editors that there are exceptions, that you should um, treat a story in such a way or that you should select out particular stories or you should cover particular stories. Generally speaking, the people who reach the top of newspaper organisations have outlooks which are fairly conservative or central. And they don't need to be told to respond in a certain way. They tend to exercise authority within their organisations in a way which is not going to clash with the outlooks of their employers. But more than that, that there is a tendency for um, journalists, and it's perhaps understandable when you're trying to meet a deadline and you're in a rush, to, to rely heavily upon powerful institutions and groups in society because they have the resources to process news for you and they are commonly thought to be um, particularly newsworthy and authoritative by journalists so that the structures of news gathering and the values of newspaper men tend to reinforce the hierarchical control imposed by the, uh, the effective controllers of the press. An example of what James Curran calls reliance on powerful institutions who have the resources to process news is provided by Gay Tuckman of the City University of New York. What happens is um, captured in the case of crime that um, you need to get news from somewhere. That is to say, you need to be able to locate occurrences that can be news events and news stories. You cannot forge out this stuff new every single day because that's too expensive. You know, it's too expensive to reconstitute the world every morning. A city like New York, there are lots of crimes every day. It makes for quite a problem. You have that many crimes, it's possible to get a good crime story very easily, you would think. But if you have so many possible crime stories, you really have a glut of crime stories, a glut of occurrences, and you have to figure out 
which crime story is the best, which meets the requirements of news as presently defined. At the same time that it's so easy to find crime in New York makes it hard, because there are too many things in the world to pick. So New York City police have a special wire service that goes to all of the major news media within New York City and essentially carries the interesting crimes of the day. And um, thus, if you're a news organization and you want a good crime story, you know, you have an editor who's keeping his eye on the police wire and um, who can find a story that says um, nine-year-old steals car and is caught after a 60-mile-per-hour chase in Central Park. It's a good story, you know, and um, the police have found it for you. Um, sometimes um, stuff that comes over the police wire will be stuff about new kinds of crime waves. At one point, a couple years ago, the New York City police invented a crime wave against the elderly. They kept putting more and more news, more and more stories about crimes against the elderly on this wire. Um, in part because the unit within the police department that, want, that dealt with crimes against the elderly needed more appropriations. You know, so the police wire managed to help the creation of a crime wave. And um, by accepting the police's definitions of crime, um, including what's an interesting crime, or what's a boring crime, or what's an important crime, or what's a trivial crime, um, the news media are all helping to maintain the police as an important social institution with the right to define crime. That police wire does not carry stories about corporate crime or does not carry stories about illegal takeovers or tax fraud or, you know, it carries stories about an old lady who got mugged or a nine-year-old kid who stole a car. Well, those emphases are um, emphases involving certain kinds of property um, and not other kinds of property. And um, by using the police wire to facilitate their jobs, um, the reporters are helping to maintain capitalism, you know, but it's not on purpose. It just makes it easier to do the work. When news organizations rely on the police or other powerful institutions to process news for them, the news will then encode the interests and definitions of these institutions. But it may also be that news organizations share the interests and assumptions of these institutions in the first place. In this case, the background assumptions which shape the news will simply be a given society's version of common sense. Todd Gitlin teaches sociology at the Berkeley campus of the University of California and is the author of The Whole World is Watching. There are a few principles which are generally taken for granted so widely as to acquire the status of common sense. In the American version, the idea that the individual makes himself or herself is one of those cardinal principles, that success is attributable solely to one's own efforts and that therefore one's social standing is not a matter of, of class or birth or origin or ideology or anything of that sort, but a matter of what you make of yourself. That's a principle that reaches so deep as barely to be detectable as ideology at all. It's simply part of the screen of, of vision. 
A second notion is the, the sanctity of the national security state, the notion that what the national security state does is defense. And notions of that sort then, in a sense, fall behind the eyes of our cultural monitors, of our reporters and other cultural entrepreneurs. Uh, those values are taken for granted, and the world is understood from within those screens. The result is that information that reveals other ways of looking at the world, that treats people as more essentially social, that is preoccupied with the dangers of the arms race, all that sort of news is, is seen as marginal is understood as discrepant with reality, is seen as freakish, is seen as disruptive, is seen as incomprehensible. Now, in order for this process to work, and I, I want to underscore this point, people have to believe in those hegemonic values. If the values that I just mentioned were seen as alien, then most people wouldn't believe them and they would not be impressed by news coverage that worked within those limits. But if the larger society is basically attached to those values, as is the case in the United States, then news which works within those limits is generally accorded legitimacy. It is accorded credibility when people read it. And, um, and by the same token, the journalists adhere to those values to such a deep degree that they do not dispute the authority of their superiors, their editors, uh, their publishers, the elites that surround them, and, the, uh, and their peers. They do not dispute them. So they fall into what Timothy Krauss called pack journalism, not because they see themselves as the agents of a ruling class or anything of that sort, but because they, they are expressing their honest beliefs that the essential structures are as they should be, that the, the, the system is essentially uh, a just one, that the defense system is essentially one conducive to peace, and that uh, challenges to those ideas are freakish and uh, not to be accorded legitimacy. That's the way the system works. An example of the way in which powerful shared assumptions bias the news is provided by the coverage of strikes and other industrial disputes. James Curran. Coverage of industrial disputes is particularly interesting because um, research undertaken by the Royal Commission on the Press, the results of which are being corroborated by other studies, shows a consistent bias in the way in which trade unions are covered in the press. And it's a bias which... Um, takes the following forms. Industrial relations tends to be discussed in terms of strikes. Those strikes tend to be associated with loss of work by those people not involved in the dispute, by loss of production, loss of um, wealth to the community, and danger and inconvenience to the public. Those are the three themes most often associated with disputes. So the press tends to cover industrial relations in terms of trouble and in terms of trouble for the public. Significantly absent in that coverage is coverage of what management says. Management tends to be relatively invisible in press coverage so that management really makes a statement or takes actions. And underlying that is because journalists tend to comment upon the consequences of disputes but not their causes. And so there develops 
a consistent form of bias against trade unions in the way in which industrial relations stories are covered. And the question is really why, because in my experience, most industrial correspondents are Labour supporters, identify with the trade union sources, and are not told to write stories by their bosses in a way which is anti-trade union. That's not how control is exercised. It's rather that the dominant values in society hold that unions have less legitimacy than do employers, and that trade union officials are asked to account for their actions in the way that management is not. And furthermore, it's often thought that uh, stories which focus upon the adverse consequences for the public are more interesting to the public than stories about the causes of disputes for particular groups of workers. So the dominant values in society and values linked to selling publications help to produce a mosaic of news which is hostile to trade unions. So it's, it, it's really quite a complex, indirect process and rather different from some of the paranoid fantasies of the left which assume that distortion and bias results from crude operation of controls from the top. It's not always as simple as that. Bias against trade unions also arises directly from the format of news. The requirement for brief, self-contained reports, a requirement that virtually defines news, inevitably isolates an event from the conditions which produced it. People who want to change a situation are seen as disruptive, while the situation that they want to change remains unexamined. If we stick with the example of trade unions, Everybody knows what a pain in the neck postal workers are, but very few people have ever been inside a postal sorting plant and experienced the conditions under which they work. Since only disruption is defined as news, postal workers are news only when they go on strike. The essentially negative definition of reality which is involved inherently favors the status quo. Todd Gitlin. Let's suppose a purely totalitarian society in which there is no visible conflict because anybody who ever opens a mouth and suggests that uh, let's say Hitler is a dictator is automatically absconded with. In such a situation no opposition is visible and a reporter could report accurately that there is a consensus of opinion which supports Hitler. That is to say, as long as you judge the news according to a, an event, a, a rupture in the status quo, and do not report on the nature of the status quo, uh, you are, in a sense, serving the status quo and ratifying it. The second thing uh, has to do with the way in which an aspect of an event is singled out for treatment. As long as the story is what happened yesterday and not what happened last week or last month or last year or happens every day, then the emphasis is again on the uh, firmness, the solidity, and the justness of what persists. And any attempt to get underneath the particular event is rendered null and void. If, if we are understanding only the immediate corruption, for example, and not the way in which corruption is bound into the fabric of everyday life, we are not really understanding the way in which the society works overall. We are only understanding violations of a status quo which is taken to be uh, normally uh, solid and uh, decent.
Yet another way in which news produces ideological effects as a sort of byproduct of its basic mode of operation has to do with its defining characteristic, newness. Since in reality there is very little that is truly new, news organizations are forced to cultivate a short memory, a sort of professional naivete which can convert the predictable into the surprising by suppressing historical context. Gay Tuckman. The way that, that news works, and it um, doesn't matter at this point whether we're discussing newspapers or um, television or radio, is to work in tidbits and snippets. And um, all of these tidbits and snippets are juxtaposed to one another uh, with a very, very limited context. There's a phrase in art history that, that uh, Harold Rosenberg uses. He talks about the tradition of the new, where everything is always new, um, and in that sense, there's no tradition. What happens in news is that you're starting over all the time, and um, everything is a kind of event, um, in quotation marks, that's contained in and of itself. You never get a sense of how everything fits together, because every event is virtually self-contained, um, and none of them ever relate to one another in some kind of cohesive way. News frequently is decontextualized information, but it must also be something more than this, or we wouldn't be interested in it. What holds our interest are the structuring elements. These may be archetypal stories, boy meets girl, man bites dog, or ideological frameworks. All guerrillas are communists. Information becomes news when it can be assimilated by the reassuring structures of what is already known. In this sense, as Stuart Hall points out in one of his writings, news contains a double movement towards propaganda or ideological reassurance on the one hand and towards myth or eternal recurrence on the other. News moves into the new and unknown, but only in order to domesticate it. It titillates and reassures at the same time. Stuart Hall. The news is an event which breaks your expectations, that things will go on as they are. See, we, we think the world will stay steady. Great. And what the news says is it's just exploded in Havana and uh, Egypt and the Middle East. That's going to shift the realities of the world and our thinking about it. And what the newsman has to say is, hold on a moment, now that's really a continuation of the process which has been going on in the Middle East. And by the time you get to the end of the news broadcast, it has, it has ceased to be so estranged from you. It ceased to be an absolutely uh, dramatic new turn of events. It's come into your framework of understanding. You say, oh yes, well now I understand why that's happened. I don't agree with it, but I understand why it happened. It fits with this. So we're constantly fitting the strange and the surprising and the dramatic back into the consensual frameworks that we use. There was some violence in today's presidential election in Guatemala. This, by way of illustration, is a news report broadcast on CBC Radio three weeks ago on March 8th. Three voters were wounded when gunmen opened fire on them at a polling station. However, in spite of the efforts by leftist guerrillas to halt the election, the turnout of voters was very high. First returns show that General Anubal Guevara, who has headed the government for the past 12 years, is holding a slight lead. The United States is watching the election carefully because it views Guatemala as the next target of communist subversion after El Salvador. 
In San Salvador, Harold Briley reports. The Reagan administration convinced that Cuba and Nicaragua are spearheading a Soviet plot to seize all of Central America and put it under communist control, have said that the growing crisis in Guatemala is potentially more damaging than El Salvador's to United States interests. This is because Guatemala is the gateway to Mexico and its vitally important oil fields. Washington has been able to influence events to some extent in El Salvador by providing weapons, training, and American advisors. But its actions are restricted in Guatemala by an embargo on arms supplies imposed originally by the previous Carter administration. But some military transport supplies have been removed from the embargo. And Washington is anxious to give more help to Guatemala in the battle against the guerrillas to thwart what it sees as a grave communist threat. Mexico's vast oil fields situated in its southern region close to Guatemala are vital not just to the United States, but to Mexico's own economic development. That was Harold Briley of the BBC. Several of the features of news which we have been discussing become evident in this example. It presents decontextualized information. Three voters were wounded when gunmen opened fire on them at a polling station which it then connects with what it assumes to be already known, attempts by leftist guerrillas to halt the election. No evidence is given that the gunmen were actually guerrillas, nor is the place where this happened even mentioned. The news is offered on the authority of the CBC, but has actually been processed by the American State Department, whose version of reality it reproduces. A very limited amount of new information is assimilated and engulfed by a familiar ideological framework. All insurgencies in the Third World are, by definition, communist-inspired. And this explanation suppresses the real historical context for the Guatemalan Civil War, 22 years of severe repression by a military junta originally installed in a CIA-sponsored coup in 1954. Finally, it should be noted that shortly after this report was broadcast, there was a coup in Guatemala, but it came from the right rather than the left. So far in this program, we have been examining the way in which the process of news gathering shapes the content of news. Now I want to turn briefly to two other factors, the economic and the technological, which also influence the nature of news. First, the economic factor. Most news media the CBC, of course, is the exception, are commercial. Canadian newspapers derive about 80% of their income, on average, from advertising. In other words, 20% of their income comes directly from selling news to readers, 80% from selling readers to advertisers. It follows that the needs of advertisers to reach certain audiences in certain amounts must be an important determinant of the character of what newspapers print. This influence may be expressed at the level of the individual story, as it frequently is in smaller markets where the publisher is less insulated from the advertiser, or it may be expressed in terms of the paper's overall approach. The Toronto Globe and Mail, on its editorial side, is certainly able to remain more aloof from its advertisers than, say, the Belleville Intelligencer, but it still must present the news in such a way as to attract the elite audience which its generally prosperous advertisers want to reach. In Britain, 
during the Second World War, newsprint rationing inadvertently created a unique situation in which the effect of advertising dependence on the press could be isolated and studied. James Curran has written about this case in his book, Power Without Responsibility. What happened during the Second World War was really very interesting because one of the unforeseen consequences of economic intervention by the government in the press industry was to create the conditions that enabled a great expansion of the left press. So the press came very much more to reflect the cross-section of opinion in the country. And this was the consequence of, um, in part, of two economic changes resulting from economic intervention. Firstly, newsprint rationing meant that the costs of publishing came down, and so papers were to some extent insulated from some of the commercial pressures on them. But much more important, the effect of newsprint rationing was to create a famine for advertising. And so radical papers found that whereas in the past they found it difficult to attract substantial advertising, at a time of newsprint rationing when space was short, they had no difficulty in attracting advertising. So advertising was distributed much more equally between papers. And that meant that papers which had been inhibited from attracting too proletarian an audience or having too aggressively radical politics found that they could move to the left and move down market, as it were, without fear of the consequences. And so, whereas the controls introduced by the government were merely simply intended to husband scarce resources, the unintended consequence was to create a new era of freedom in the press. With the end of rationing, this situation changed, and gradually the left press either disappeared or moved more towards the center of the market. Advertising dependence, we can conclude, exerts a pervasive form of social control by forcing the media to remain in the mainstream. The second influence on news, which I want to examine here, is technological. What Harold Innes called the bias of communications has been with us since the invention of writing. But with the costly technological refinements of the last century, this bias has become, in a sense, more radical. Consider television. With its national, even international reach, its engrossing immediacy, and its apparent objectivity, television has exerted a major bias on our whole social and political system. And, as a result of its unprecedented persuasive power, television has been responsible for a major shift of political power out of the formal political process and into the media. Here I want to consider briefly three ways in which television has usurped political power. The first is outlined by Carmen Cumming, professor of journalism at Carleton University. Television unquestionably brings the reporter or analyst out front and center. I mean, in the print era, it was possible and desirable for the reporter to be very, very much in the background. In television, he's there on the screen, and there's a, a very strong temptation, naturally, for him to, to take this stance of uh, being the protector of the people in opposition to government. And that, in itself, may be one of the, the reasons and the manifestations of 
this new power of the media. Um, so the, the, the reporter comes across almost as the people's representative. It's sort of a democratic inversion. The, the reporter is implying, uh, look, I'm looking out for your interests, the public interests, in opposition to these venal politicians or these lazy bureaucrats. The second point concerns the influence of television on the political party, and it is made by Paul Rutherford, professor of history at the University of Toronto and the author of The Making of the Canadian Media. The news media have been very important in undermining partisan loyalties amongst the public. There was a time, there was a time in this country, when you could pretty well predict how a constituency would go because you just had to look at past polling results. And the key for a political organizer in the 1880s and 1890s, and in many cases in the 1930s as well, was not to win over the electorate, but to get out your votes. That's still of some importance, I'm not denying it. But, but partisan loyalty as a constant factor continues to, to dwindle. And that was a basic stability which the political system had. Something else that has happened is that the parties themselves have begun to lose coherence. They have begun to lose coherence because they have begun to, they have lost some of their significance. Parties were once necessary to marshal votes, to get those people out, to satisfy people. They were a technique whereby a newcomer could be legitimized and could rise in favor. The party system was a way of finding newcomers, of bringing those people along and training them. Now you can leapfrog. Now with media coverage, if you're significant in business or if you're significant in the bureaucracy, if you establish a public image, you can leapfrog right to the top. Uh, Trudeau is almost a case in point of that. Uh, Joe Clark, interesting enough, is an old-time politician in this sense because he came up through the ranks. Of course, then he entered a new form of politics, and look what happened to him. Television imposes its systemic requirements in a number of ways. Because television requires large audiences to pay its extravagant costs, and because it must hold these audiences against the possibility of their simply changing the channel, television news favors brevity and dramatic, personalized conflict, which can be treated in visual terms. The effects of these requirements are most evident at election times. Paul Rutherford. Elections now are contests in which the political organizers on the one hand and the media on the other hand define what goes on. They fight a little internal battle amongst themselves to determine what gets on the TV news, what gets into the newspapers. The public is, is, has been removed uh, at a distance from what happens. The election campaigns occur in a, uh, a circus atmosphere, uh, but is a circus that is not defined by one group, either the journalists or the politicians themselves, but defined by their tension, their battle. They struggle to schedule events to take control of the media, to get out various kinds of images and impressions to people. And this has come about because of TV, because of the central importance of TV in the electoral process now. It has defined the electoral game and defined to a large extent the whole political game. The framing of elections as games has sometimes been described as horse race journalism. 
in order to find out how much of this kind of coverage there actually is in a modern election campaign. Jeremy Wilson, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Victoria, studied the media coverage of the 1979 federal election. He examined the CBC and CTV television networks, Maclean's magazine, the two Victoria papers, as they then were, The Times and The Colonist, The Toronto Star, and the Toronto Globe and Mail. Stories, or parts of stories, were assigned to appropriate categories. The two relevant ones for our purposes here were issue or policy analysis and horse race journalism, which focused on the who's ahead, who's behind aspects of the campaign. I found as expected, at least as one would expect, given what the American uh, studies had shown, that this uh, kind of coverage, which is labeled horse race journalism, was, was most prevalent. Between one-third and one-half of the coverage, depending on which medium you were looking at, was accounted for by uh, horse race uh, journalism. So we got in the campaign, and I believe we'd get in, in any modern campaign, considerable amount of speculation from the media about how the teams are running, continual analysis of their uh, competitive strengths and weaknesses, uh, we got a steady stream of commentary on their strategies. We got uh, continual reports on polls, both those being done by the larger media enterprises and those being done by the parties. Uh, every move uh, of the parties and the politicians was analyzed for its political or electoral impact, and, uh, described in terms of the uh, tactical motives which might lie, lie behind it. So. From about anywhere from about a third uh, to a half of the coverage was of that sort. Uh, by comparison, the uh, issue commentaries or issue analysis, uh, depending on the media, would account for only about uh, five, uh, five, ten, fifteen percent of the coverage. So, uh, as much as three times more coverage given over to the uh, horse race type of, of uh, coverage as was given to analyses of, of the uh, uh, so-called issues of the campaign. Did you undertake historical comparisons too? Some historical uh, work was done. Uh, I took a fairly uh, quick look at uh, coverage in a couple of British Columbia dailies going back to the campaigns of 1935 and 1957, so going back 20-some uh, uh, years and 40-some and, uh, years. And uh, that coverage showed, as I expected, that although what we would call horse race journalism has been around for a long time. Uh, it certainly didn't receive the degree of emphasis that it, it uh, has come to receive in the in the uh, 1970s. Going back uh, into the uh, 30s and even the 50s, you tended to find more uh, basic reports from the campaign trail, and, and uh, what you found was that uh, newspapers uh, frequently reproduced large segments of uh, candidates or leaders' uh, speeches uh, verbatim. The obvious question then is why the change? There are a number of reasons why campaigns have come to be uh, designed and, and uh, depicted uh, as they have, but uh, I certainly think that the, the uh, advent of television journalism has had a considerable amount to do with with uh, the way uh, campaigns are currently uh, presented to us and the way campaigns are designed. Uh, certainly the the uh, television 
uh, news format demands um, good visuals, uh, short thematic reports, uh, full of action, capturing the drama of the campaign. And certainly these horse race stories meet those demands better than uh, would uh, a commentary on policy ideas. Television really wants the campaign to be a campaign. Uh, it wants there to be attacks and counterattacks and victories and losses and feints and strategies and generals and lieutenants. And I think the parties have really responded to what television wants in the way of a campaign. The parties jet their leaders back and forth across the country, uh, dropping them down here and there to, to uh, shore up the defenses or, or uh, spur on the locals. Uh, they uh, help to fill the campaign uh, full of uh, pseudo-events by, by uh, continually doing public opinion polls and leaking the results of those polls to the media. Uh, and these and other ways, I think, uh, the demands of television have helped to shape the sort of campaigns uh, we have. Television has changed the nature of news by moving it closer to theater. A recent training manual for CBC television producers declares simply that news is theater. TV has also resulted in a shift of power from political to media elites. In effect, certain constitutional functions have been moved out of the formal political process and into the media. But it's important to remember that these are changes taking place within an overall consensus in which political and media elites share a common view of the world. And it is the construction and regulation of this consensus which remains the primary role of the news media. This is what Stuart Hall called the underpinning power of media in the statement with which we began tonight's program. This power is used to lend weight to certain definitions and to exclude others. In her book, Making News, Gay Tuckman examines how this process worked in relation to the feminist movement. The women's movement was itself treated to the same kind of treatment that uh, movements in general get, so that um, there was the perpetual um, search for a responsible spokesperson, uh, which in particular works to discredit the more radical elements within a movement. Uh, in the case of the women's movement, the radical portions of the movement, the ra more radical portions of the movement, were intent on collectives and not having a spokesperson. So news process in that sense then does what um, could be expected to do, and it creates spokespersons where there are none, and it finds people to call up. Um, the first person to write a good book on a topic or the first person to be presented, to be made vice president of a bank, um, very much akin to what happened in the case of the civil rights movement. Um, first black fellow to go to this, that, or the other university, you know, got to be a spokesperson. And um, in that sense then, at the same time that the media made news of the mo movement and so brought the movement more recruits, it contained it by creating its leaders, by um, creating its issues, by um, pushing out the radical elements. Certain points of view are emphasized, others excluded. Those excluded are typified as a sort of lunatic fringe, and their position is mocked and trivialized with impunity. They are not allowed to speak for themselves. One consequence may be that those who are labeled as radicals will be forced to become more so. 
Stuart Hall. The question is, when events have been given a particularly powerful and emotive label, do they have an impact on creating in reality uh, what, uh, how they have already been described and labeled? Do deviants become more deviant by being constantly called deviant? Do people say, well, if you're going to, if every time I open my mouth you're going to say, why don't I go back to Moscow, perhaps I will go back to Moscow. That kind of way of living up to, I mean, it's a sense in which the media can become what are called self-fulfilling prophecies. If you go on talking uh, endlessly in one way about a group or an event, the event will eventually come to resemble the way in which you've described it. These consequences of the use of powerful labels to discredit opposition are in a sense incidental to the primary function of news media, which is the construction and maintenance of consensus. This function is performed by pushing any radical critique of society to the margins of social life, while at the same time absorbing and domesticating those forms of opposition which can be made compatible with mainstream values. One of the key aspects of this function is to set the boundaries for political debate. Noam Chomsky, professor of linguistics at MIT and the author of The Political Economy of Human Rights. Let me illustrate by example how the system works. Uh, take, take, the, take again the war in Vietnam. Now, in the mainstream media, say the New York Times or the Washington Post, uh, it is, you know, the picture is sort of this. They say, well, there was a big, great controversy over the war in Vietnam. There were the doves and the hawks and they were at each other's throats, and you know, the great debate raged for years and years, and uh, the time says, we'll have to let history decide at some time in the future who was right, the doves and the hawks, or the hawks. Then you look at their definition of doves and hawks, and it turns out that characteristically the definition is this. The hawks are the ones who thought that if we fought the war harder and more in a more committed fashion, we could win. And the doves are the ones who thought that no matter what we did, we wouldn't win. Those are the doves and the others are the hawks. And between these two extreme positions, let the debate rage. Well, of course, there's another position, the position of what was probably the majority of the American people at the end of the war and was certainly the position of the peace movement, namely the position that whether we could win or not, we had no right to uh, uh, invade South Vietnam and then the rest of Indochina. It wasn't a question of whether we could win. It was a question of whether it was right to do it. Now, that's the position that we take automatically in the case of, say, the Russian invasion of Czechoslovakia or Afghanistan. We don't ask, are they going to win or are they going to... We don't approve of the invasion of Czechoslovakia because they won. I mean, you know, that, that would be ludicrous. Uh, the fact that they won just makes it more of a tragedy. But, to, but that, those elementary considerations are simply inapplicable, unthinkable, when applied to our own society. So the time, so for, for the New York Times is quite willing to have a debate. In fact, they encourage a debate between those who are doves and hawks in their sense. And the reason is because the doves and the hawks share the same fundamental assumption that the United States has a right to win. We have a right to use our force and violence. We have a right to win. But people can legitimately differ about whether we can get away with it. Now, this, this is a characteristic technique of... Uh, Western propaganda systems of what we call in the book brainwashing under freedom. The technique is to encourage debate, but to set the limits, to set the constraints of opinions in such a way that all sides in the debate share the very same tacit assumptions, namely the assumptions of the propaganda system. So in other words, the assumptions of the propaganda system are almost never stated. Nobody ever states in a headline you know, the United States has the right to use force and violence to achieve its objectives. 
In fact, you don't want to say things like that. What you want is for that assumption to be tacit, to be accepted by all participants in the debate, no matter how far apart they are. So the doves accept the assumption, but then conclude that we can't get away with it in this case. And the hawks accept the assumption and say, we can get away with it in this case. And then, you know, the more debate there is, the more agitated and uh, extreme the debate is, the better the propaganda system is served, because the tacit assumptions are just more and more deeply embedded. And what you get in the Western societies is a kind of a fake dissent. I mean, you get people who are dissenting from policy, but on the basis of acceptance of its tacit premises. These tacit premises do not originate with the news media, but the news media do reinforce them. And this reinforcement is much more likely to be effective where people lack perspectives and sources of information of their own which they can bring to bear on the task of what Stuart Hall calls decoding the news. Where people don't have many alternative frameworks, or where, of course, the popular consciousness is directly reflecting those dominant definitions which the media are using, both those situations are situations where the media definitions can flow without encountering many resistances directly into the, into the viewing audience. And in a sense, the ideological work which is going on is for the broadcaster to try to line up the decoding frameworks in his audience so that the audience is not only agree with the point of view that he's put into his report, but actually don't think he's put anything in at all. They look at it and they say, that's the truth. Television is a window on the world. News becomes news against a background of assumptions about what is already known and accepted by the audience. The deeper underlying structures of thought which constitute this background are left undisturbed. In fact, by concentrating only on the eruptions at the surface of social life, the news helps to make these underlying structures invisible. They are simply common sense. Making Sense of the News The concluding broadcast in our series, The Politics of Information, written and narrated by David Cayley. Producer, Max Allen. Technical Operations, Keith Vanderclee. Production assistants, Allison Moss and Susan Crammond. Heard on tonight's program were Gay Tuckman, Stuart Hall, Louis Lapham, James Curran, Todd Gitlin, Carmen Cumming, Paul Rutherford, Jeremy Wilson, and Noam Chomsky. A reading list for the series, including books and articles by the people you heard tonight, is available free from Ideas. Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Executive producer for Ideas is Geraldine Sherman. I'm Sharon Dunn. Good night. Thank you.